We are in our main message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through his complete life across all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, in the order the events actually happened to get the most complete picture possible of the life of Jesus. Everything he taught, did, said, who he really was. We don't want to hear about it in a book somebody else wrote. We want to see it for ourselves in his words so we can know him for ourselves. Last week, we saw Jesus have a fascinating interaction with a woman on the coast of Lebanon near modern-day Beirut. Jesus was north of Israel trying to get a little R&R, but word quickly spread that he was in town, and that R&R didn't really end up happening. We saw Jesus provoke this Syrophoenician woman to greater faith by taking her through a difficult situation, and we were reminded that many times God is doing the same thing in us, taking us through a difficult situation to allow faith that we may not even realize we have to come out of us, to choose faith instead of fear. And this week we're gonna learn about something we all need in our lives. If you're going to walk in everything that God has for you in this life, you're going to need this thing. We'll also be taught on the subject of faith by Jesus himself. This week's message has the potential to radically and dramatically change the way you view God and view your relationship with God for the rest of your life. It really does. So let's dive in. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, second book in the New Testament, chapter 7, verse 31. Picking up where we left off. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, that's the coast of Lebanon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. So Tyre and Sidon, as we mentioned, north of Israel, coast of Lebanon, north of Galilee, which is northern Israel, where Jesus was based at this time. So Jesus leaves Lebanon and heads home back down south by foot. On a map, when you actually look at this journey by foot, it's one verse in the Bible, but the journey could have taken several months potentially. As he goes down, he hits this freshwater lake, the Sea of Galilee, and instead of going to the Jewish side of it, he goes to the Gentile side of it, known as Decapolis. It's fascinating when you read the Gospels and realize there are entire blocks of time missing in our timeline of the ministry of Jesus. And during that time, he's teaching, he's doing miracles, and I can't wait to get to heaven because I kind of think when we get to heaven, one of the first things that's going to happen is everyone's going to be given like a complete series like DVD set of the ministry of Jesus, you know? You're really going to want to watch the bonus discs. There's some really good stuff in there. It's going to be awesome to just like sit down and just spend the first couple of months just like watching everything Jesus did. That's in my head how it's going to go. It's really cool. It's not theology, by the way. Don't go tell your friends, my pastor said there's DVDs in heaven. <laughs> On the way back to Galilee, he chooses to go to the Decapolis side of the Sea of Galilee. Galilee, the non-Jewish side. Ten cities dominated by Greek culture, and the Greek word for ten is deca, which is why this region is called Decapolis. And you might remember that Jesus has been to Decapolis before. It was actually about two years earlier that he was there where he healed two men who were violently possessed by demons. You might remember the famous demoniac of the Gadarenes who, when Jesus asks them their name, the demon responds, my name is Legion, for we are many. I think it's one of the most freaky verses in the Bible. So these men were running around naked, screaming, cutting themselves, unable to be restrained even by chains, living in caves. And by the time Jesus was done with them, they were sitting at his feet as his disciples in their right minds, healed. 
They had been possessed by thousands of demons, and Jesus had driven the demons out into a herd of pigs. The demons made the pigs run off a cliff into the Sea of Galilee and all die. The townsfolk come out, and at first appearance, they ask Jesus to leave because they're upset about the loss of their livestock. And it seems they're more concerned about losing livestock than they are about the men who have been healed. But there's a a second sort of layer to this. There's more behind their suspicion than it may first appear because Jesus was Jewish. And everyone in Decapolis knew this. And the Jews didn't have a good reputation among the Gentiles, the non-Jews living in Decapolis. Because they pretty much treated everyone who wasn't Jewish like garbage. They referred to them as kindling for hell and other cute nicknames, which tend to make one feel less than welcome. Jews were known in Decapolis for everything they were against. You can imagine the Jews sort of driving around with bumper stickers on the back of their carts that read, enjoy your bacon in hell, hashtag kosher. Like that's the sort of vibe that they had going on around at the time. And so everyone in Decapolis really just thought that everyone who was Jewish was just kind of against them. They were bigoted. They were anti-Gentile. And sadly, many believers still make similar mistakes today. You know, I see many believers post opinions on social media that don't really have anything to do with standing up for Jesus. But in sharing that opinion, we sometimes fail to realize we're setting up a wall between us and other people who might desperately need Jesus. One of the hardest lessons I had to learn as a young man in my early 20s in the faith is that when I become a Christian, when I become a follower of Jesus, his kingdom is more important than my opinion. And so sometimes I give up my right to voice my opinion for the sake of the gospel. And here's the practical side of this. If you're following Jesus and you believe in the Bible, you're going to offend a bunch of people anyway. So I'm not saying don't offend people. I'm saying let's not offend people unnecessarily because we're going to offend them enough anyway just by following Jesus. So don't post things. Don't voice strong opinions unnecessarily because you never know who there is that God might want to use you to reach that you have now built a wall in front of. And now that can never happen. The gospel is more important. That's why I post on Facebook once a week. Maybe. That's about it. Because everything else I go to post, I'm like, no. (laughs) No, no, don't do that. So about once a week, that's all I do. The gospel is more important. So when Jesus shows up the first time in Decapolis, there's suddenly some missing livestock. They know that he's Jewish, and they just think, you know, this, this whole thing just smells funny. So Jesus, you and your Jewish homies, just sort of just get out of here. That's what we'd like you to do, and they do that. You might remember that the two men who were healed, who were delivered from demonic possession, they asked Jesus if they can go with them, and Jesus says, no, you can't. He says, instead, stay in Decapolis, go around Decapolis, tell everybody what I've done for you. So two years later, Jesus comes back, and we get to find out, well, did they do it? And what sort of effect did it have? What was the effect of their testimony? We find out that apparently they couldn't shut up about Jesus because things have dramatically changed two years later when Jesus comes back. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to read to you what Matthew's gospel tells us happened. The great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. This time they're excited 
ecstatic that Jesus has come to their region. This time they're convinced that Jesus has the power to heal. And I love where it tells us these people found healing. Did you pick up on that? It's the same place you and I find healing, at the feet of Jesus. And over our past few studies, we've seen the Jewish crowd unmoved by the miracles of Jesus. In fact, they left because they didn't like what Jesus was teaching. What's the response Jesus gets to the miracles he performs for the Gentiles in Decapolis? In this area, rightfully suspicious of anyone Jewish. It says they glorified the God of Israel. Of Israel. That's remarkable. They became believers in Jesus. Now we're going to shift back to our study in Mark and focus in on one specific healing that Jesus performed while he was in Decapolis. In verse 32, it says, Then they, I want you to underline they, it's going to be important. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. I had you underline the word they because this nameless they is going to have a lot to teach us this morning because they care enough about this man to get him to Jesus. Not only that, but they care enough about this man to beg Jesus to touch him and heal him. The word used there for begged can also be translated as prayed. So they're praying, they're begging, or as we'd call it, interceding. To intercede in prayer is to simply pray on another person's behalf, to pray for them. If you love somebody, if you care about somebody, the most loving thing you could ever do for them is bring them to Jesus and beg Jesus to touch their life. Bring them to Jesus, the place where they can encounter Jesus, and beg God to touch their life. There is somebody that God wants you and I to be they for. So who are you interceding for? Who are you interceding for? Who are you praying for right now that maybe doesn't even know that they need to be praying to the Lord? Who are you interceding for? I believe every single one of us can be used by God to share the gospel with people. But I also see God using different methods in different times with different people. In this case, we see the friends of this man who brought him to the place where he could encounter Jesus. Sometimes the best way you can help somebody is by simply inviting them to come somewhere where they can encounter Jesus. I promise you that is our prayer every single Sunday at this church. Our prayer is not everything go perfectly. Our prayer is God would every single person encounter you. That's what we want. That's what we pray for. That's what we long for. And these people do that. They get him to where they can encounter Jesus. So in your life, who does the Lord want you to bring to the place where they can encounter Jesus? They, write this down, they simply brought their friend to the place where he could encounter Jesus the place where he could encounter Jesus. This man would not have gotten to Jesus without his friends, but notice this, notice this. This is your next fill-in. They got him to Jesus, but the miracle took place when he got alone with Jesus. They got him to Jesus, but the miracle took place when he got alone with Jesus. We need fellowship with other believers. We need community with other believers, but we also need that one-on-one relationship with Jesus. And one is not a substitute for the other. Church is not a substitute for a one-on-one relationship with God. And a one-on-one relationship with God is not a substitute for being with a church 
We need both. Do you have both in your life? If you don't have that one-on-one relationship with God, start tomorrow morning. Set aside 20 minutes. It'll be the best 20 minutes you ever spend during that day. Open the Gospel of John, read it, pray. Start there. Start that one-on-one relationship with the Lord. In the book of Acts, we're told something about the early days of the church. And I mean early days, like the first couple of weeks. So Peter has just preached the first complete sort of gospel message in the history of the church. The first altar call, it goes well. 3,000 people respond. It's a good start. And everybody stays in Jerusalem for a few weeks to learn and grow as God is literally creating the church from nothing. And so as they're doing this, they don't even really have an idea of what they're supposed to be doing. So what they're doing is led by the Holy Spirit and they just keep doing the things that work what God was blessing, what was growing faith in them. It says this in the book of Acts, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So they studied God's word, they took communion together, they prayed and they fellowshiped together. There was just something about being with other believers that was obvious to all of them. It was obvious that when they got together, they all felt encouraged. They all felt closer to God. God was moving through them being together as the church. Listen to me. I've been doing ministry for a little while now. Probably not as long as you think. I just look older than I am. But I've been doing it for a while. And I've seen a lot of people show up at churches when their life has hit a crisis point. And I've listened to a lot of those people talk about how there is nobody in their life who will help them or care about them. And here's what I've learned in those situations. Write this down. The presence or lack of presence of a they in my life is a direct result of the way I've chosen to live my life up to this point. The presence or lack of presence of a they in my life is a direct result of the way I've chosen to live my life up to this point. If I've lived entirely focused on myself, not investing in any encouraging relationships with brothers or sisters in Christ, not participating in opportunities to build those relationships, not taking the initiative to seek them out, I do not have the right to be angry, upset, or bitter that there is no they in my hour of need. I don't have that right. I don't have that right. This is tough love here. I want to be very real. If you became homeless tomorrow for some reason, and there is nobody in your life who would take you in, you need to seriously examine the way you're living your life. Seriously examine the way that you're living your life. There is a reason if that is the place you're in right now. If you're hearing this and you're honestly thinking, well, I don't want to sound unspiritual, but what I'm thinking right now is, okay, how do I make people like me? Because I don't want to be homeless. I'm not saying that's going to happen at all. How do I make people like me, Jeff? The answer is simple. Instead of focusing on getting them to care about you, you need to focus on caring about them. Start living for Jesus because the more you live for Jesus, the more difficult you'll find it to live a self-centered life. Jesus lived the most selfless life anyone has ever lived. And the closer you get to him, the more like him you will become. The Bible talks many times about the principle of sowing and reaping. This is especially true in the area of relationships. What are you sowing? 
If I could see what you're sowing into your relationships in your life right now, I could predict with 99% accuracy the future of your relationships. I really believe that because it's that simple. It's that uncomplicated. It's not rocket science. But sometimes we sow nothing and are then bitter when a harvest doesn't magically spring up. We sow nothing into our relationships and then we're bitter that we don't have any. Sow what you want to reap. Sow what you want to reap. These people don't just know about this man. They know this man. They know this man. You will never have deep, encouraging friendships that build your faith if you only share the shallow surface level of yourself with people. Sow shallow relationships and you will reap shallow relationships. Sow fake concern for others and you will receive fake concern from others. Be an unreliable friend and you will have unreliable friends. But on the positive flip side, if you'll be a friend who will drop everything to help a friend in need, you will have friends who will drop everything to help you in your hour of need. There are people who have dropped everything to help me in my hour of need. There is no question I would drop everything to help them in their hour of need. No question. Because they have sowed the right seeds into my relationship with them. I've said this before, but many people seem to believe that the church should be a magic relationship zone. You can just come and be unfriendly, not participate, show up once every three months, not be a good friend, and you should have, if this is a good church, tons of people who love you and care about you and will drop everything to help you in your hour of need. Because the church is a magic relationship zone where sowing and reaping doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. John MacArthur had somebody come up to him after church and say, you know, I don't think your church is very friendly. And John MacArthur said, well, have you tried being friendly? It's <laughs> a really, really good answer. Because the person was saying, no, I thought church was a magic relationship zone where I didn't have to do that. Everyone should just come up to me and be fascinated by my life and want to be my best friend. It doesn't work that way. Have you noticed that the closer you are to a person relationally, the more likely you are to get involved in helping them when they need it? That's the most obvious statement I could make, right? The closer you are to a person, the more you're gonna care about them when they need help. If a stranger calls me tomorrow and says, hey Jeff, I need some money, I will say no. <laughs> Sorry. But if a friend calls me and says they desperately need some money, I'll probably say yes. Now if you're thinking, man, I need to call Jeff tomorrow, we're probably not that close, <laughs> okay? Just so you know, okay? <laughs> As a pastor even, every now and then, I'll get emails and they'll say, Pastor Jeff, my brother who lives in another country has a best friend, and this best friend has an aunt, and that aunt's son has just come down with cancer. Will you intercede for them? Let me be honest. The best I can do in that situation is pray right after I hang up the phone, but my heart is not in that relationship because I don't have a close relationship with that person. Don't look so shocked, you're exactly the same way. You know it's true, you know it's true. Bunch of hypocrites, okay. <laughs> I'm not gonna be on my knees interceding for that person because I don't have that deep relationship with them. Now if it's somebody who's very dear to someone who's very dear to me, that will hold. 
But the idea is sort of degrees of separation, isn't it? The more degrees of separation there are, let's just be honest, the level of care and concern goes down because the investment you have in that relationship goes down. It just does. It's the way we're wired. So be honest with yourself. Do you have anybody in your life who would intercede for you in your hour of need? Do you have those relationships where you have sown the right sort of seeds? Do you have anybody that you could talk to about a secret sin that you're wrestling with? Do you have that person in your life? An area of your life where you've messed up and you're now struggling with shame? Do you have that trusted person in your life? Let's make sure we're all sowing the kind of seeds that will reap the kind of harvest we want to see in our relationships. On the practical side, if you're realizing, man, I I need some godly relationships in my life, there's some very simple things you can do to start moving in that direction. Be at church every Sunday. Get to know people. There are people here who love Jesus. And don't wait for somebody else to be friendly. Don't make your strategy, I'm going to sit in the corner and look as lonely as possible. I'm just going to hold out. I've tried this in my marriage and it doesn't work. It does not work. Doesn't work. You can hold out as long as you want. Doesn't work. Go out for lunch with somebody after church. Ask if you can go out for lunch together. Serve at church. Get to know other people who help make this happen. They love Jesus. Get involved with a small group somehow, some way. We have men's groups and women's groups for people who've made New Hope their church home. It's a great place to be in an encouraging relationship with other believers. And hear me on this. You need people of faith in your life that will intercede for you when you need it. If all your closest friends are unbelievers or casual believers, you are fooling yourself if you think they will be able to help you in your spiritual hour of need. They will not be able to help you. It's like being friends with someone who doesn't know how to swim and going out in a boat with them as your backup plan if you start drowning. It's just not going to work. There's a great saying, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Secular studies show that we become like the five closest people we have in our lives. The five people we're closest to, we will move in that direction without doing anything, without even trying. So ask yourself the question, where's my future going right now? Who are the five people I'm closest to? Some of us might need to make some radical changes because the result is inevitable. All you have to do is nothing. If you don't have those right relationships, all you have to do is keep everything the same and you're going to end up somewhere that you don't want to be. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to see that happen. God doesn't want to see that happen. That's not his plan for you. If they don't know God, then they can't really help you. Let's go back to our story. So they have brought their friend to Jesus. They've brought their friend to Jesus. Verse 33, and he, Jesus, took him aside from the multitude, so he gets alone with them, and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Now you might be thinking, what the heck is going on? Is this like some magic ritual? Is Jeff gonna do this one time when he asks if he can pray for me? (laughs) Jesus isn't giving this guy a wet willy. What What he's doing here is he's doing some form of sign language. He's doing some form of sign language. Scholars tell us he's communicating with this man, helping him understand what he's about to do. Verse 34, it says, then looking up to heaven, he, Jesus, sighed and said to him, 
Ephatha, which is an Aramaic phrase that means be opened. So Jesus looks up to heaven, and that's a signal to this man that what is about to happen is coming from there. It's coming from heaven. And scholars point out that Jesus chose a very distinct word, even from a syllable perspective, when he chose to say Ephatha, because it would have been a very easy word for this man to lip read. Verse 35, it says, Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. I want you to use your imagination a little bit. I want you to to picture this in your mind because this is a deeply moving interaction. So Jesus manages in the middle of all the craziness of his ministry to get a moment in time alone with this man. And it says Jesus looked up to heaven and he sighed. (sighs) We don't know exactly what was going on when Jesus sighed. And so I want to be honest. I'm speculating. I believe that in that moment when Jesus looks at this man, Jesus sees the heartbreaking effect of sin manifested in this man's physical body. He looks at this man and he doesn't just see the physical effects of sin, he sees the emotional effects of sin on this man. Even though he had a they, to be deaf is to be isolated in a different way to being blind. The communication is so much more difficult. There's no voices. You can't hear sympathy in another person's voice. Very, very different experience. Much more isolation. A lot more loneliness. And I'm not saying that this man had a physical ailment because he was a sinner. What I'm saying is that every physical ailment that exists in our world is ultimately the result of sin entering the world. And so Jesus looks at this man. He looks at his disabilities and he looks at the emotional brokenness in this man. And I think Jesus has a moment many of us have had where he's just overwhelmed by what sin has done to people, to us, and to the world. And he just looks up and he just sighs. He just sighs. He's just overwhelmed by the effect of sin on us. I know Jesus is signaling the man that help is about to come from heaven. But I think he's also having a moment that many of us have had where Jesus himself is just longing for the day when his kingdom returns to the earth and everything is made right. In Romans, the Apostle Paul says it like this. I think it's on your outlines. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because of the creation itself, also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And if that sounds complicated, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying brokenness didn't just enter people when sin entered the world. Brokenness entered creation. It entered the entire universe. Nothing is as it should be. Everything is broken. Everything is in entropy. Everything is in decay. And the Bible says that creation itself groans longing for the day when Jesus makes all things new. Creation itself is waiting in impatient expectation for Jesus to come back for the moment the sons and daughters of God, you and I, return to the earth with Jesus and he makes all things new. Paul says the whole universe 
is groaning, is in angst, is sighing as Jesus did, waiting for that day. I know you've had those moments. I've had those moments too. And I find it so moving that I think Jesus is having one of those moments as well as this broken man stands before him. And Jesus gives us a preview of what happens in his kingdom. The broken man is healed and he's made whole. And the day is coming when that healing will cover the entire universe and God's kingdom will come to the earth. The apostle John saw that day in a vision and wrote about it in the book of Revelation. He wrote, it's on your outline. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. You ever think about the fact that the moment is coming when death will die? We're passing away, will pass away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. Jesus groaned along with all creation and then he did what only he could do. He overpowered the effects of sin and he made this man whole. And I believe that Jesus would have us view our whole world through this lens, understanding that every bit of pain and evil and brokenness that we encounter in our world is ultimately the result of our collective sin. We all have a part in it. We all have a part in it. We all helped usher brokenness into this world. Every single one of us. Does your heart break? Does your heart groan along with all creation over the effect of sin on humanity? There's a deep well of compassion, deeper than you have within your own self. When you begin to understand that we're all participants in the brokenness that we see in the world. We all help bring it to fruition. We all played our part. And when we see people making destructive choices, is our immediate assumption, well, you know, they're just an idiot doing stupid things. Or is it the part of us that says, yeah, but you know what? They're only an idiot doing stupid things because there's sin in this world. And this world is broken. And when you can see situations and people that way, man, there's compassion there. There's a lot more compassion than I have within myself when I understand, man, there's a spiritual equation at play here. And when it says that the healed man spoke, the Greek verb there is continual. So the idea is that he kept on and on talking. And wouldn't you? I mean, I'd go through Tim Hortons and yell the order because I can now speak in here. Number three, number three, number three, double, 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 double. He's excited. He's just going on and speaking. Verse 36, then he commanded them that they should tell no one. I love this. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. One of the things I find so encouraging about this miracle is that Jesus is not bringing wholeness to a life or death situation. This is not a life or death situation. This man has a they. He has a family or friends who care about him. This man is not homeless. This man is not starving. This man is not isolated and without relationships. He has community even though he has this disability. But yet his disability is just that one thing. He feels like it's that one thing holding him back. And many of us have that one thing 
that we feel like is holding us back. But Jesus cares about it. He cares about that one thing. I want you to write this down. Jesus cares about our personal needs. He cares about our personal needs. So what's your one thing that might not be life or death? Is it a behavior you can't seem to stop, a habit you can't seem to break? Is it a relationship you just can't seem to fix, a hurt that you can't seem to get over, a financial burden? Maybe you're single and that's your one thing. And none of those are life or death. But Jesus wants you to know he's not up in heaven saying, you know, count your blessings. You're not starving to death in a war zone right now. That is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus, when he healed people, he didn't say, yeah, yeah, I know you're deaf, but there's a paraplegic over there. That's like a, that's like a nine. You're like a seven. He doesn't do that. He doesn't rank people. He just says, man, this is relative. This is your one thing. And Jesus cares about it. Jesus touches that situation and he does a miracle there. He cares about you. He cares about your one thing and he has the solution. I believe that. I believe that. Just continue on into the next chapter, verse one. It says, in those days, so around that same time, the multitude in Decapolis being very great, there's a ton of them, and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. So it's not that the crowd hasn't eaten for three days. They've been eating, but they're just now reaching the point where they're running out of food. And some of them live far away. So if they have to make a long trip, put out a lot of physical exercise to get back there, some of them are just going to pass out on the way home. They're not going to die. It's just going to be a very unpleasant situation. Verse four, then his disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And if you've been following our study, you'll remember that very recently, within the last couple of months, Jesus fed 5,000 people in a very similar situation. So what's up with the disciples' seeming lack of faith? Why do they seem to think this is an impossible situation? Well, there's actually three possibilities, and you're going to have to decide which one you think is most plausible. So the first interpretation is the most popular, and that's just that this is the disciples being the disciples. They're stupid, and they don't get it yet. That's the general first opinion. The other possibility is that they do believe Jesus has the power to do this, but the feeding of the 5,000 took place in Jewish territory to Jews. They are now in Gentile territory with Gentiles, and they're thinking, there's no way Jesus is going to do that for Gentiles, non-Jews. That's a possibility. The third possibility is that they're actually having a bit of fun with Jesus, because when Jesus fed the 5,000, he actually told the disciples, go into the crowd and see what food is there. Take inventory. And that process could have taken a few hours for them to come back and say, we've got five loaves, five bread rolls, two fish. Jesus has them do that so that there will be no doubt that what's about to take place is a miracle. So that nobody could say, well, maybe everybody actually had food or somebody had a bunch of food. They inventory the entire crowd, thousands of people, and say, this is all there is here. Five loaves, two fishes. That happens the first time. It's possible that what happens here is that Jesus shares his thoughts out loud about saying, I have compassion on these people. I want to feed them. And the disciples go into action right away without being asked, scouring the crowd for food. And that's why when Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? This time they have the answer ready. And they go, seven. They're like high-fiving, you know, like 
seven. We know what you're going to do. We know what's up. You know, we've seen how this works. And it may have been completely tongue-in-cheek when the disciples say to Jesus, how can one satisfy all these people in the wilderness? I mean, it's impossible. Three possible explanations, and you decide which one you think is most plausible. Verse 6, so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks. He broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. So as you may remember from the feeding of the 5,000, according to the custom of the day, they only counted men. There were 4,000 men, could have been women as well, could have been a bunch of kids. There could have been 8, 10, 12, 16,000 people there, but many more certainly than just the 4,000 men. And when it talks about these baskets that they had, these were designed for carrying heavy, heavy loads. These weren't like little lunch baskets as in the feeding of the 5,000. These were huge ones you would wear on your back. And so Jesus provides this massive abundance, possibly because they've got a journey coming up where they've got to walk back. And Jesus isn't just saying, I'm going to give you a snack now. He's saying, I'm going to hook you up for the walk home. You're welcome. He takes care of that. So why are these people still there? This is interesting. Why are they there if they're running out of food? Why doesn't the crowd just scatter? Why aren't they petering out? It's because they were hungry for the truth and the life that Jesus was offering. They were more hungry for the words of Jesus than they were for food. And the words of life are just pouring out of Jesus. And they're hanging on his every word. These people are putting to test a promise that Jesus made that they probably never heard him teach. I know you've probably heard it before. Jesus said, therefore do not worry, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. They made a simple decision to seek the kingdom of God over their practical needs. So what does Jesus do? Well, he meets their practical needs. We see that principle and that promise holding true right here with the 4,000. Goes on, it says, and he sent them away, and he sent the crowd away. Verse 10, immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. As a side note, I think it's noteworthy that in both Galilee and Decapolis, Jesus did not try to attract a crowd by offering them free food. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, Go into the villages and tell everyone I'm going to be serving a free dinner. That'll get a bunch of people here for our ministry. The attraction, the only attraction was come and hear Jesus teach. Come and hear the words of Jesus. Come and hear the words of life. Not only that, but when Jesus does miracles, he tells them, don't tell anybody. He doesn't say, hey guys, I'm doing a bunch of miracles. We might want to capitalize on this synergy that we have going on right now from like a marketing perspective. This would be a good time for you to go and put the word around town that I'm doing ministry, put up some posters, miracle ministry, get a bunch of people to come out for the miracles. We'll draw them in with the miracles and then I'll hit them with the old one too with the teaching, with the old bait and switch. Jesus does the complete opposite of that. Anytime people start flocking to him because they want the signs and wonders, Jesus does everything he can to blow up the situation. Oh, you're following me for the signs and wonders? Well, if you want to follow me, you better eat my flesh and drink my blood. Zero concern for synergy or momentum, right? Just blows up the situation. Heals someone dramatically, don't tell anybody. 
The Israeli crowd, the Jewish crowd, come to him the next day saying, hey, you know, where's our free breakfast after he feeds them? And he just sends them away with a tough teaching and they all leave. That's just worth noting, I think, as the modern church. Because as the modern church, we often love to work the old bait and switch when it comes to ministry. You know, let's, let's get them here with the free food and then we'll hit them up with the gospel. And Jesus never did that. He never did that. Sometimes he did good, kind things for people outside of the gospel. And other times he did good, kind things for people who were there to hear the gospel. But Jesus never used bait to get people to come and hear the good news. He never did a bait and switch, ever. I think it's worth remembering. The way this applies to our ministry is that if a crowd shows up for free food, it doesn't mean that God is moving. I did youth ministry for several years, and one of the things I learned is that it wasn't really a big deal to draw a crowd. There's a lot of things you can do to draw a crowd. Give away an iPad, have a petting zoo. We'd have a petting zoo and a bounce house and have probably a couple of hundred people here today if we wanted to. A bunch of people showing up does not mean that God is moving. Our heart and our passion is that we would rather have one disciple than a hundred people just showing up for free food. Because the Great Commission is go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's our passion. That's what we desire to see. And that was the passion that Jesus showed in his ministry as well. Well, there's a very interesting hidden layer to this miracle that emerges when you compare it to the feeding of the 5,000. This is just pure fascinating stuff, at least to me. I think you'll find it intriguing. You can make a big deal about it or not. The 5,000 were predominantly Jews in a Jewish location. They were in Bethsaida in Galilee, northern Israel. The 4,000 are predominantly Gentiles in Gentile territory, the Decapolis. So the 5,000 had 12 full baskets of food left over. 12 is a number associated with Israel in the Bible. You have the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles who were sent to minister to the Jews, the 12,000 men from each of the 12 tribes of Israel in the book of Revelation, and on and on it goes. The 4,000 had seven full baskets of food left over. Seven is the number in the Bible generally associated with completion. So God has a specific destiny for Israel, but he does not consider his kingdom complete with only Israel. He considers it complete when the Gentiles have been added as well. The 5,000 are fed in the spring, right around the time of the most Jewish of feasts, the Passover, and the 4,000 are fed in the summer. And there's this long stretch of time in the Jewish calendar of feasts between the spring and the fall. There's only one feast that takes place during the summer months. There's only one. And it's interesting which one it is. It's the Feast of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls, as Jesus prophesied, on all flesh, Jew and Gentile alike. Prophetically, we are in the summer months of God's plan right now. God is ministering to the Gentiles and has been for almost 2,000 years. He's not actively ministering to Israel or the Jews as a nation, but that doesn't mean he's done with them. They have their own destiny in the fall of God's plans as well. And then finally, the 5,000 were with Jesus one day before he fed them, one day. How long did Jesus have to be with the Gentiles before he fed them? Three days. What do you think the symbolism is there? Your second guess doesn't count. That's right, the three days Jesus spent in the grave following his death. The Gentiles, you and I, 
had to be with Jesus in the grave before we could be fed by him. The Bible says that in order for us to be saved, we have to identify with Jesus in his death and resurrection. That means we have to believe and we have to accept Jesus' offer of having died in our place. When he went into the grave, we're saying, I went with him. When he was punished for my sins, yes, he was doing that in my place. And when he was raised back to life, yes, he was raised back to life in my place. And I was raised back up with him. Just a few things that are interesting as you compare the two. You can make a big deal or not. But in conclusion, I want to say this. When I study the miracles of Jesus in his ministry, two things strike me. Firstly, as we mentioned earlier, Jesus cares deeply about the things that you care about. He cares deeply about those things. They might not be life or death, but they're a big deal to you. Jesus cares about those things. Secondly, I see an abundance that marks the miracles of Jesus. Just a ridiculous abundance. Maybe you grew up around stories of God's faithfulness, but they always went something like this, you know? God has been faithful. He's always provided just enough. And when we were running out of money... He would always provide just enough. We could always have at least one light on in the house. And it sounds like a good thing at first, but when you grow up around that, you grow up with an image of God, with a picture of God, with an idea of what the Father's personality is like. And whether you realize it or not, your view of God is that he's a weird kind of cheap. He wants to meet your needs, but in the smallest, most cost-effective way. He'll always sustain you, but only barely. He'll provide just enough. I was almost out of oxygen, and he provided just enough. The problem is I don't see that kind of God in the Bible. I don't see that kind of God in the Bible. He doesn't go to the deaf guy, I'm going to restore your hearing, but your speech impediment, that's... (laughs) It's not really that big of a deal. So we're just going to leave that, you know, so you don't get prideful. He doesn't do that. Did the 4,000 eat a ration? Did the 5,000 eat a ration? The word used in the Greek is that they ate till they were stuffed. They ate like gluttons is what it is. Till they could not have any more. This was a miracle of abundance. Did Jesus make a few spare bottles of wine at the wedding in Cana? You do the math. He made over 180 gallons of wine. That's enough wine to make the worst comedian hilarious. That's a lot of wine. That's a lot of wine. So I want you to write this down. This is your final fill-in. He's not the God of just enough. He's the God of more than enough. He's the God of more than enough. And some of us have been limited in our faith. We've been limited in our prayer life. Because we've been raised with the God of just enough. When he's really the God of more than enough. You need to know that the Jesus of the Gospels is identical in character to our Father in heaven. Jesus even told his disciples, oh, you want to know what the Father is like? You don't need to know what the Father is like because you've seen me. I am exactly like the Father and the Father is exactly like me. You want to know how compassionate the Father is? Look at how compassionate Jesus is. They're one in the same. He's the direct, accurate representation of the Father. Exactly like him. He's God. He is God. 
He's God. He is not cheap. He's not limited. He's not miserly. He's not stingy. He's not uncaring. He's outrageously generous. He's outrageously generous. He didn't even withhold his own son from us, but gave him. He gave him. He gave us his own son. That's an act of generosity that will never be surpassed, ever. He supplies our needs, what does it say, according to his riches in glory. His riches in glory. He owns the universe, but he's not even limited by the universe. He's the God of abundance. He's the God of more than enough. More than enough. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? The first opportunity we always want to give is for anyone here who's never made the decision to follow Jesus, to give your life to him. I just want to invite you to receive the greatest gift that has ever been offered. That in his generosity, God the Father loved you so much that he gave his son Jesus for you to die in your place so that everything you've ever done wrong, everything you ever will do is taken care of by Jesus at the highest price possible. He gave his life so that you could be with him forever, so that you could start over, so that when all things are made new, it will include you. If you've never given your life to Jesus, but today you want to do it for the first time, you can do that. But I also know and believe that for every single one of us, there is something in our lives that God is shining a light on. Maybe you're realizing that your whole view of God has been wrong, that you viewed him as as an angry God, as a stingy God, as a God who's out to teach you a lesson, but today you're beginning to understand that's not who he is. He is love incarnate, and he loves you. Maybe your prayer today needs to just be, God, show me who you really are. And if you're struggling with that one thing, I want you to know that Jesus knows about it, and he cares about it, and he has the solution. You bring that to him today in prayer. You give that to him. Pour out your heart to him, and I believe God's going to begin going to work on that in your life. You know what the Lord is shining a light on in your life. So just be still for a moment. Think on those things. Meditate on those things.